Welcome to the Identity Talk for Educators Live podcast, the show for the unsung heroes of education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa, and on this podcast, I highlight the unspoken and unsung heroes who are changing the education game as we know it. Every day, I come across the work of so many incredible educators who simply don't get the recognition they deserve. So on this podcast, we will provide you, the audience, with an opportunity to learn the personal stories of these incredible educators and the specific elements that shape who they are in and out of the classroom. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Welcome back for another brand new episode of Idain Talk for Educators Live, the show for the unsung heroes of education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa. And if this is your first time tuning in to the podcast, we welcome you and we hope that you return back for future episodes and new content. And if you are a returning listener or viewer of the podcast, we welcome you back, and we hope that today's episode is one that you find informative, enlightening, and insightful. So before we get to the main conversation, I ask that you all press that red subscribe button if you are watching from YouTube so you can get future notifications on new episodes of the podcast as well as other visual content. And we also welcome any donations if you love what you're hearing on the podcast so you can see the cash app handle which is dollar sign id talk for ed or you can make a donation at venmo at kwami sm we welcome all donations big and small and that will help us continue to improve the podcast and bring more phenomenal guests in and also we are on all other streaming platforms. So if you're someone that's listening um, through audio, you can catch us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other streaming platforms. And we're always looking for feedback on any of our episodes. So if there was something about the episode that really hit you in the spirit or just really resonated with you, we love to hear that. So make sure you leave a review on Apple Podcast and follow us on Instagram with our handle, Identity Talk for Educators Live. Thank you kindly. So today's episode is one that I think all of you will find inspiring and motivating. Um, today's guest is someone who is an icon of perseverance. She is an inspiration for so many school leaders, but most specifically, you know, women. And I don't want to go too deep into the story, but all I'm going to say is you may need to get a tissue box if you're someone that's an empath and you get emotional when you hear, you know, certain stories. But this is a story that I think a lot of you will, will be touched by for sure. And I'm just so excited to have today's guest on to share her story and 
and just how she's been able to navigate this world of education and and do the work that she's doing um, in her uh, native Camden, New Jersey, which we'll talk a lot about today. Uh, so without further ado, I want to bring on Principal Fatih Abdul-Rahman to talk about her story, her life, and what brings her into this important work that we call education. So let's get this conversation started. Bring her on. Hello. Hello, hello, hello. You know, I was looking for a tissue because I'm like, wait a minute, I'm the biggest crybaby. So <laughs> hopefully we won't be crying. Hopefully we won't be crying. <laughs> no, it'll be tears of joy, if anything. Yes, yes, of overcoming. Amen. Yes. But how are you today? I'm awesome. I'm awesome. It's a beautiful day and I'm excited to be on the identity talk for educators. So I've been a longtime follower and so super honored to be a part of this show. Um, likewise, and I have to say, uh, you are just joy. Like every time I see you, whether you're doing the morning announcements for your Forest Hill students, whether you're doing a read aloud, I don't think you have a bad day. You, you just <laughs> oh, always I happy. I do, I do. Well, but you, you know what? I think one of the one of my favorite um, poet poems that I had to recite growing up was um, "Attitude," and it just simply says, "The longer, the longest, longer I live, the more I realize the impact of attitude on life." Um, attitude, me, attitude to me is more important than anything. And so, long story short, I choose each day what attitude I'm going to embrace for that day, and I choose joy. I choose joy despite the whatever I'm going through, despite you know, parents yelling or students having issues or teachers having issues, I choose joy because if I can put my head down at night and say, I touched one child that day, you know, my living's not in vain. So I choose joy. Oh, absolutely. And we all need to take heed to that advice. But let's get started from the beginning. So yeah. I already mentioned, you know, you grew up in Camden, New Jersey. So as someone who was next door in Philadelphia, attended Temple University, I've heard many stories about Camden and it's not the easiest place to live in, but you know what? There is still joy within that. Yeah. So I don't want to just focus on the negative. Uh, we definitely want to touch on some of the positive things that people may not know about the city of Camden because yeah. there are some great things going on. Oh, absolutely. So we'd love for you to just share just your story growing up and yeah. what, what brought you into the education field. Yeah. So a little correction. I, I actually was born in Philadelphia. Uh, my father and oh, okay. my mother. Yeah. My father and my mother, they, um, they decided that they were going to get us out of the city and they bought some land in Williamstown, New Jersey, which is not too far from Camden, and we moved there. How I got to Camden is um, growing up, um, I grew up a Muslim, and my masjid and my family, all of my family lived in Camden. And so uh, Camden is a, a second home to me. But how I got into education, I can tell you when I, growing up, I did not think I was going to be a teacher that was far from my mind. I actually 
wanted to be a lawyer. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer until I shadowed one and oh, saw wow. that she was writing and studying and doing all this stuff. I'm like, this is not me. Um, you know, it just seemed like it was an isolated job and all she was doing was researching. And I knew that I had a personality that um, was meant to be touching a lot of lives. And although a lawyer does the same, I just, it didn't feel right to me. And so I fell upon education by mistake. Uh, I, I know we'll get a little bit later in my story, but I was working at a children's museum and you know, first I started off as the floor help and I was just cleaning up the children's museum floor and then they invited me to do birthday parties and they said, she has a gift. And, you know, I was adding my own little thing to these birthday parties and which my little thing was education. And then I became, they transferred me to doing workshops. And from there, I fell in love with teaching. I was really good at it. I, very surprising. I, I was really good at it. And I decided to shift and go into um, education as an assistant teacher for Head Start. Um, and that's where I got upset. I got upset uh, because I saw many of my, my students and their siblings, their older siblings coming in, struggling, struggling to read. And these kids were in fourth and fifth and sixth grade, and they were struggling to read. And I knew that, you know, I wanted to take this anger that I was feeling because it was real, real anger and um, empower myself. You know, I looked at a lot of teachers and I said, well, if I'm upset, then I need to do what they're doing. I need to get an education. At that time, I did not have an education and um, decided to do that, to get an education in, in education. And it just changed my whole, my whole life. Wow. And. I know you've pretty much been open about, you know, your story. Yeah. Um, you know, being a teenage mom and even going through homelessness yeah. at one point. Yeah. And as someone who's taught middle school students for most of my career, you know, I've had students, you know, end up getting pregnant at even earlier ages and yeah, not really knowing how to move forward. Um, so I'm interested in knowing when you had, you know, your two children who are now grown. Yeah. Phenomenal things. 28 and 26. Yeah. Yeah. And I know one of them is going down the same path. You are in education. Mm -hmm. I understand. She's a teacher now. Yeah. Wow. Teacher like I was. Oh so, yeah. Yeah. See, look at that. Yeah. Keeping the legacy going. But, um, when you are going through. You know, just being a teenage mom and going through homelessness. Because, I mean, I think you had your two children by the time you are 19. Yeah. And I'm thinking to myself, as a 19-year-old, I can't imagine how I would have reacted, how, how I would have moved forward if I had a child that young. But you managed to figure it out and, and mm -hmm. create a path for yourself. So I, I'd love to hear, you know, more about just that story mm -hmm. and how you're able to persevere. It definitely wasn't easy. I mean, a, a lot right. of – I look back and I go, Wow. Um, you know, I'm very shocked at how I even like how I made it. I just got an opportunity to look at a, a, a video and I'm like, wow, that my story is, you know, such an, a, a phenomenal story. And I don't think I would have believed it if I was on the outside of it. Um, I, I remember growing up, it was it was very difficult for me. 
you know, I told you I, I grew up a, a Muslim. And so with that, it, it wasn't a um, accepted religion. And I, I went to a predominantly white school. And um, I remember being called Aunt Mama. I remember being teased and the, the, you know, that middle school age was hard on me. And, yeah. you know, I had the trauma. My father, my mother was mentally ill um, growing up. And so, you know, I, I had to go through that. And my father not knowing how to deal with my mother mental illness, um, there was a lot of abuse in the home. And so when we talk about the adverse childhood effect. I mean, I, I look at that and I go, oh my goodness, you know, not knowing that that's what I was going through. The trauma at that time, um, you know, was very traumatic. And so I I found myself in middle school harming myself. I was cutting myself. I was doing harmful things. And by the time I got to high school, my mom was committed to a mental hospital and, you know, just operating on, out of anger um, you know, and so you, you, as a young girl, you look for love in all the wrong places. And I found, I thought I found love and ended up being pregnant, uh, which impacted school for me. And now fast forward, I'm with these two girls struggling by myself. And I remember the turning point for me in my life. Um, I try not to show my kids the, you know, I, I choose to keep them because it was a choice. But I, I really tried not to show them what we were really going through at that time. You know, I I couldn't get assistance. I don't know why. Couldn't get assistance. I couldn't get help. And I remember coming home to an eviction notice. And I didn't have anywhere to go. I literally had, didn't have anywhere to go. People would say, well, why didn't you go home? Well, I got to remember home was my mom was in a mental hospital. My father was abusive. Um, that wasn't an option. That was not an option for me. And um, so I, I decided to go to to try to get some help. And it was as if the lady just looked at looked through me like I was nothing and shook her head and said, those poor girls. And I, I thought at that moment, my girls could do so much better without me. Um, and so when we talk about what kids go through during trauma, that fight, that flight or flee, I, I definitely was ready to run away. Run away right. for me at that time was to let it go, let it end it all. Um, and so I had tried to commit suicide su several times. And this was the time that I knew it was going to be over. It was the, this was going to be the day. And I remember my oldest daughter looking at me and saying, mommy, you know, I'm in the bathroom crying my eyes off. I had my three-year-old on one side, which is my oldest daughter and my one-year-old on the other side. And I'm crying because I didn't want to lose them. I didn't want to leave them, but I knew I, I thought that was the best thing for them. And um, I remember my oldest daughter saying, mommy, why are you crying? And I told her, I'm like, I'm lonely and I'm broken. And she said, mommy, you're not lonely. <laughs> you're not broken. You have me, you have Cheyenne, three years old, and you have God. And that was the moment I, you know, that was the moment I looked up and I'm like, if, if I can fight, I'm going to fight. And I didn't know at that time, like how I could do it. Um, I tried, I, like I said, I went to, I, I went to um, work at a children's museum. I just was trying to fight, fight, fight. And I realized that the only way that I can get out was through education. 
that was my only way I can change it for my girls. And if I could get out, if I can get out, um, you know, everything would be different. And so I tried community college, you know, but having children and having, you know, a full-time job was hard. And so I wasn't doing, I, I did poorly in school. And, but I, I, I knew that was my ticket. I didn't want to give up. I didn't want to give up. And so I made the biggest leap of faith when my daughters, my youngest was five and my other, oldest was seven. I said, I'm just going to leave it all. Like, I can't do it here in New Jersey. I have to go. And I decided to enroll myself in a historically black college in Alabama. Never been there ever, <laughs> never been to Alabama, but something about it said I needed to go. And in 2001, I packed my five-year-old and my seven-year-old up in a car crying, thought I was having a nervous breakdown. Oh, wow. And um, we moved, we moved to Alabama. We got an education, which was not easy. We struggled many a nights without, you know, I didn't, you know, it didn't just happen like, oh, boom, I go to Alabama, I have money now. You know, I still struggled and I wasn't on assistance at that time. And so I remember just having limited amount of food and trying to take them to school, not knowing anybody, but just trusting God, trusting God will get us through these, this time. And, you know, he did, he did. And I look back and I'm like, I don't know how, but um, that four and a half years, because I didn't go five years, I, I struggled in the beginning, but I, Four and, year, four and a half years later, I graduated cum laude. Um, you know, I went to school on an academic probation. I need y'all to understand that. And I graduated cum laude. And to see my girls see that, you know, to see their mom, like, finally get us out of whatever we were in, I knew that I felt like Harriet Tubman. Um, wow. I, I couldn't just be satisfied with myself. I had to go back and get some more. And so I decided to go back to New Jersey, went to Camden, New Jersey, and taught as a fourth grade teacher. And something about what I was doing was amazing, I guess. Um, I humbly say that. And um, I, my first year teaching, I became teacher of the year, second year teacher of the year. I was a teacher of the year for like six years straight. Um, and then two years People two years in after graduating, somebody said, you know what, you should be something, something, something. And I'm like, does this lady know? I only just I just graduated two years ago. Um, because I was still I was older, I wasn't a young, you know, right. teacher. Um, and so I got selected to be part of this MPA program, my master's in public education administration. Um, and when they found out I was only teaching for two years, they kicked me out. But um but Rutgers decided to keep me, which was a blessing. I had to pay for it myself, but they decided to keep me. And um, two years after graduating, I got an MPA in uh, public administration. And I was also blessed to go to uh, South Africa to study children of trauma because that's, you know, I went through trauma. My daughters were going through trauma at the time. And, um, you know, that was a blessing. And then I just fell in love with education. That was my ticket. And so I got an EDD. I, I got a no, wait a minute, wait, back up. I got an ED. I got an MED, a master's mm -hmm. in education. And then I continue to keep going. I got an EDS uh, in curriculum instruction. And from there, you know, I got rift from my job, even though I was teacher of the year, um, which rift means I got re reduction in force. 
And so I got kicked off the job, but it was a blessing in disguise that I didn't know that at the time. And the school that I went to, they asked like, why are you still teaching? You need to be leading somewhere. Right. Kicking and screaming um, in 2014, I was uh, not not something I was looking for, but I was named um, one of the founding leaders of a charter school in Camden. It was the second lowest performing school in the state of New Jersey. And we were able to take that school in three years and change it tremendously. And and in 2018, I got another itch. What you know, I I knew that I needed to move on, but I was moving on as an assistant teacher to public school. And again, they were like, no, we want to consider you as a principal. And so in 2018, um, I was blessed to become the eighth principal of Forest Hill Elementary School, where I am now. And um, uh, news alert, I I just was recently um, appointed as a director of school support. Um, So I'm going to be transitioning from being a principal in December to being the director of school support, where I'll be supporting um, 12 schools and their leaders on changing the narrative. So- God keeps elevating, and I'm like, I don't know. Mm. Um, God is good. God God is good. He's good. good. He's good. um, You know, it it, it just shows you whatever, wherever you find yourself, whatever situation you find yourself in, um, if you can look up, you can get up. And if you can get up, you can rise up. And I'm not, my story is not anything special. For me, it was education. That's what was my ticket. Um, and like I said, like Harriet Tubman, I'm going to go back and get as many as people as mm. I possibly can, because if it, if it can do it for me, then it can do it for you. Wow. Yeah. Ooh, people, we're just scratching the surface. Oh, <laughs> yeah. We scratching the surface. Yes, I'm sure yes, yes. we have some tear jerkers out there already. Yeah. Man. So I want to backtrack. I do want to talk about Forest Hill in okay. a second, but okay. I do have some questions. So. So when you were in Alabama, so I know you attended um, Oakwood University, yes. correct? Yes, I did. Now, Oakwood University, HBCU. Yes. So I'm wondering, had you not attended Oakwood, and let's say you went to a PWI, hmm. do you believe that your educational journey and your overall life trajectory would have been different? Absolutely. It would definitely have been different. Um and I would not, I don't think I would have been who I am today. I think my, the decision to go to specifically Oakwood, it wasn't any, I had no other decision but Oakwood. And I can't explain to people why Oakwood, but it was Oakwood for me. Um, I found a voice, my voice. I did not have a voice. Mm. I did. I went to Oakwood without a voice. I did not have a voice. I had low self-esteem. Uh, remember, I was the cutter. I was the person who self-harmed herself. That didn't change. Right. That did not change. Um, and so I found a voice there. I found leadership there. I was um, a, a vice principal, the only vice principal, vice president. The only reason why I wasn't president, they wanted me to be president because I was a mom and I had to take take care of my my kids. Um, right. But I was the uh, vice president of the education department. And, you know, I found leadership there. I found my voice. I found who I I just became this uh, person that I did not know existed in me. Um, I thought 
I, I you know, I, I really only gave myself one year. I, I, that's how low I thought of myself. I gave myself one year. I right. thought I was going through a nervous breakdown. I didn't understand why I was packing my kids up and going to this, this state that I have never been to, no support. Um, so I really literally gave myself one year. And when I constantly wasn't like I was failing, I wasn't in the beginning, I, I, it was hard to find my balance to get a groove to learn how to, you know, study and, and be a mom and to, to find work. And like, I could not find a balance. And so I wasn't, uh, my, my grades suffered because of that. And my girls became my biggest supporters. They were teaching me, like I tell my everybody, my daughters have been in college ever since the age of five and seven, because they were literally, after they did their homework, they were, they were quizzing me. Um, wow. and but I had professors there who invested in me, who um, really embraced me, um, didn't feel sorry for me. They held me accountable, but they embraced me and they loved on me and they um, understood my story and my my de desire and my you know will to like, I have to do this. It wasn't an option. It wasn't something that, you know, hopefully it'll happen. I had to do it. Like I had to graduate. Um, and they were there to, to encourage me when I wanted to give up. They were there to say, you know what, this is, let me teach you how to write. Cause I didn't know how to write. Let me teach you how to do this. Let me teach you how to do that. I don't think I would have gotten that experience had I gone somewhere else. I know not, I don't think, I know I would not have gotten that experience in a predominantly white school. I would not have, um, you know, and I, I really thank my, I thank God that I was able to find a historically black college that fit my needs um, and saw me to the end. I will forever, like I was trying to get my daughters to go to Oakwood, but I'm like, they were like, no, we did that already. So, um, but I know I do believe, I believe in um, the importance of supporting historically black colleges in and helping with identity, I, especially when you don't have one. I did not have one. And again, I went going growing up, I went to a predominantly white school. And, um, you know, I, I felt less than I felt like I, people didn't understand me. And, you know, it, it's, it's a it's a horrible feeling to go into your locker and see Aunt Mama. Remember, Aunt Mama was a slave. This is a depiction Man. of a slave. Mm -hmm. um, and to get that kind of a teasing and taunting um, because of the how you dress and the color of your skin. And to, then to go to a school where there's so many people that, you know, we're from different levels. Just because we all look the same, we're, we're different um, levels, but to find an, my identity, to find myself, um, and to find my voice, that is something I, I am so appreciative of Oakwood and, um, I will always sing Oakwood praises. Yes. And shout out to Oakwood university yes. and yes. all the HBCUs. Um, yes. they serve an important purpose, especially during this, uh, age right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, Throughout your story, there's this recurring theme of mental health. Yes. And, and I want to talk about that within the context of Black girls, um, because that's something that's been coming up, not just recently, no. but just 
generations after generations. Yeah. So I have um, Monique Morris's book, Push Out, where she yes. talks about this in great detail. Mm-hmm. And I still need to crack it open. It's it's on cue. On my Gotta read it. Gotta it's read it. Yeah. It's on cue. But I, I want to know, just based on your experience and the work that you do with with Black girls um, who may be going through similar situations as you did, how much of an impact do you think the adultification and the misogynistic the misogynistic messaging has on the mental health of black girls. Yeah. Yeah. I'm so glad you are asking this question. Um, so every Sunday, every Sunday, faithfully, I send out the Hill blast to my mm-hmm. staff. And um, in that blast, I, I, I ask them, are we living up to our values? Are we living up to our vision? And in our vision, we talk about this inclusive environment. We talk about all of this. And one of the things that I'm very disturbed in is I'm seeing a large number of our Black girls um, being sent to the office for long periods of time or being written up for very minor things. When I go into the classroom, I'm like, okay, I, I get the writing up. But if it's not a, a fear, it's disproportionate. Um, so I'm thinking of this one young lady in my school and struggling. She's struggling to find her identity. She doesn't feel like she fits in. And she she tells me that. She's, I don't, you know, the teacher doesn't like me. Now, I, I have to tell you, my school, while it is predominantly African-American children, I have a predominantly um, older white female um, staff. Mm. educators that um, uh, work with our kids. And what I'm noticing, not just from them, but for all of my teachers, that there's a large number of our girls that are not, they don't feel safe. And because they don't feel safe in class, or they don't feel a sense of belonging, children will respond to the, these behaviors. And either, again, they're going to fight you, they're going to shut down or they're going to like flee that situation. And so, um, you know, I told my, I I really, I wrote my staff this morning, literally this morning, are we pushing these girls out? Are we pushing these girls out? Every time I go to school and see another girl walking the hallways or see a girl um, just not feeling a sense of belonging in a classroom, what do we have to do? Like, what is, what are our responsibility as a school to fix it? You know, I know what I can do as a leader, but if we don't change the, the, the teachers, the, the culture of our school, then we're pushing our girls out. And I have to remind many of our staff members and remind myself, these girls are only 10 years old. Right. The oldest girl in my school is 10 years old. They are children. But we're treating them as if, you know, oh, she had an attitude. She's a child. Oh, she, you know, she won't keep her mask on. Did you ask her why not? She probably is having hard. Most of our our African-American children are struggling with breathing and they have asthma and they have issues. Have you asked them, do they need a, a, a break to, you know, pull down her mask? Right. I'm seeing these, you know, unfair um, write-ups and I'm, I'm very disturbed by it. 
and they are young children. And it's not something that's happening in my fifth grade. My school is a K-5 school. And so it's not just my fifth graders that are being constantly sent out. It's my babies too, my five-year-olds. And so when you asked about a duplication, you're absolutely right. Are we are we putting these unrealistic, um, you know, just ideas about what these girls, you know, they're not, they're babies, they're children, they're children. And so from that, I, I, about five years ago, I had a problem with a lot of our girls just fighting with one another and in talking to them, you know, I, I, I knew that they needed more than just a suspension or anything like that. They needed somebody right. to teach them how to be a young lady or to teach them how to one, um, understand their emotion because it's a real emotion, but then also how to self-regulate those emotions. How do I self-regulate instead of hurting myself, instead of fighting, instead of fleeing, how do I self-regulate? And so teaching them that. And so from there, I started a group called PEARLS. Um, PEARLS is an acronym that stands for uh, positive, they're elegant, they're attractive, they're resilient, they're leaders and they're um, sisters. And so that acronym it has stemmed it like we would, you know, we come in, we every Friday, we would have our pearl meetings, they would dress up in their pearls. And it, it came about, um, I always wear pearls, just because. Um, and so Where are they today? Pearls, I don't see them. I don't have them. I have them right here. I have pearls. I always wear pearls. Oh, you got the pearl. Okay. I, I, I don't, but because this is, not a, this is not an outfit for pearls. I'm sorry. For got pearl you. necklace. But I have it on my, I have it in my ears. No, I, so, I got um, you. Um, so I always wear pearls. So that particular day I had pearls on and I took it off and I was telling them how precious this pearl was. And I was using it as an object lesson. And I was telling them like what that pearl went through to become a pearl. And from there, you know, that's how it just, it, this pearl group came about, um, my mentoring pearl group. And it started as an assistant pr principal, but as a principal, like it, the issues don't change. The girls still were going through these same issues and they needed to learn how to be leaders. They needed to learn how to find their voice. They needed to learn how to self-regulate and all of those different things that comes with trauma, um, opposed to just suspending and um, ignoring the behavior. And so, just allowing them to be empowered. And so from that, that first time I did it at my school, we had something that called us our pearl tea, where women, very strong, powerful women that looked like my girls came and, and started pouring pearls of wisdom in them mm. and building their pearls, building that chain of pearls that they were having. And it literally wasn't something that I sat down like, okay, let me write a proposal for that. It was just being responsive to, okay, Fatia, go back to where you were, you know, going to that school when you were um, a young girl and not being, you know, not being understood, not really, you know, going to school, physically abused many, many a times and no one even asking me, are you okay? Um and just the, the the things that I was going through, so never never forgetting my what I had what I went through, so that I can support the girls and also educate. I believe in about it's about education. We talk a little a lot about at my, in my school about biases. We talk a lot about privilege. We talk right. about microaggression um, because many a times as educators we are we don't realize we are doing these things um, until it's someone brings it to light. And so when I 
write these Wednesday, every Sunday, faithfully, when I do this corner where we're being reflective as educators, I really want us to be reflective. I want us to look at like, why do we have a number of girls that are getting sent to the office? What's going on with that? Let's talk about that. And how can we fix it? Why do we have, um, what are some I statements? I, at the, last week it was, I do not say. What do we not say? Oh, that's a, a girl's, that's a boy's job. Or that's a, we don't say that because we don't gentrificate by or anything like that. So um, I'm really trying to make sure that as a school, we are aware um, and, and we address these things that are real. These are real situations that, you know, many of our, black and and brown girls go through on a daily basis and you know it, as long as i'm a leader it's going to stop with me it's going to stop with me mm. and um we're going to break that prison to jail that that preschool to jail pipeline because we all have a responsibility uh, to make our schools one where kids all all children feel safe and all children feel like it is a learning environment where they feel nurtured. Um, they're, we're not only looking at their academic needs, but we're looking at their social and emotional needs and being responsive to that. And I think that's why it's important for us to adopt restorative approaches. Absolutely. Absolutely. When dealing with behavior. So I've had a number of episodes in the past on this issue of just instituting restorative practices, not just in the classroom and not just within a circle practice, but like yeah. it has to permeate throughout the building. Absolutely. And as a school leader, you already know, it's, you know, we talk about building a positive school culture. It starts with you. It starts with you setting the tone and modeling that so that the staff can see that. But it's different when you're a black woman yeah. in educational leadership because there are certain biases that are attached to you. So when, when Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw talks about intersectionality and how oppression comes in the form of the different identities you may possess. Yeah, yeah. So being, one, being a woman and then being black. This is then being a leader, within, <laughs> yeah, and yeah. then being a leader as well. So, yeah, this is happening within the educational context. So, I'm interested in knowing from you what have been some of the ups and downs that you've experienced throughout your journey, um, being a principal at Forest Hill and just other yeah. and, and and your other stops as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely a lot of ups. You know, I have a lot of ups because again, I choose joy. <laughs> I choose joy. Yeah. Um, and to set that tone, set the atmosphere, I, I always believe in leading by example. You know, I believe in if I'm going to say that this is what we're going to do, you're not going to say, I'm not going to put it on you. You're going to see me lead by example. But, you know, as an, and I think you hit it on a nail, as an African American, woman who is a leader to a predominantly Caucasian um, staff, you get a lot of, um, and I have to question, you get a lot of pushbacks on things because of people privilege. Um, mm. People may think they have the privilege of saying something to you. Um, and I question it because would you do it if I was a Caucasian man, 
no, who was who came before me. I didn't, you know, before me was a Caucasian man and he could he did not get a lot of the pushback that I was getting. Um, and that's just facts. But would you do it if I was a Caucasian man? And then would you do it if I was a Caucasian woman? Um, I always often ask myself that. And there's been a lot of level of disrespect. It's been a lot of level of disrespect and not to say that you have to respect me because of my title, but yes, you have to respect me because of my title um, and respect me enough to know that I'm, I'm not going to lead the school astray. And you, you're always, whenever you're, you're excited about an issue, like IE, I'm excited about making sure that we restorative practice is a thing. Social and emotional learning is a thing in our school. Um, that we're looking at all of our the 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 whole child and not just the academic part of our child. That's a thing. We're looking at culturally relevant issues or or curriculum. That is a thing for me. And when I express my passion for that, it's again you're labeled as the angry black woman. Right. And you can't, you just can't be passionate about the topic. You have to be angry about the topic. And I'm, I'm learning, you know, in the beginning, you know, that bothered me. You, you tip me toed over different things, but I am learning unapologetically. I have been called to this work. Um, I've been called to do the work that I'm being called to. And sometimes you're going to, people are going to embrace it. Some people, sometimes people aren't, and that can't be my issue. But my calling is to those children that I was called to serve. And if uh, we're doing all that we're supposed to be doing for them, then my living is not in Spain. I'm going to hurt a lot of people's feelings. And it's going to, and I don't want to say, oh, well, <laughs> but oh, well, the biggest um, tip that I got from one of my mentor leaders was get a Q-tip. And I thought that was the harshest thing that she would say. Now, <laughs> Q-tip means, Q-tip, simply, if you don't know what it means, it means quit taking everything personal. And so I don't take it personal. It's not personal to me. It's personal when I am doing the things that I am called to do, and that is to educate these children, then I'm not going to take your attitude or your privilege, your microaggression or whatever. I'm not taking it personal because I have a calling that... Um, will happen and we'll, we'll, I will see it through uh, despite being called the quote unquote angry black woman. Mm. And, and this is interesting because, you know, I've had Principal Cafele on the show. Shout out oh, to Principal nice. Cafele, another yeah. great leader in the state of New Jersey. Yes. Um, a North Star of mine personally. And, you know, we talked about what it means for a black school leader to have long-term sustainability in this field because of a lot of things that you mentioned, there are so many negative forces that are coming your way and you have to figure out a way to, to get past that, yeah. to persevere in order to stay on the job. And when you think about the pushback that you receive and even your vocal advocacy for certain issues that are impacting students who look like us. Yeah. 
not just students that look like all students. Every well, child all students. Should, every child should have a culturally relevant curriculum. Every child should have a, their social and emotional well-being should be met. Every child should be treated fairly and feel safe in the environment that they're in, especially our black and brown children, because historically, historically they have not been. You know, we have um, policies and practices that are rooted in racism. Let's let's be honest of what it is. It's rooted in racism. And until we name that, until we talk about that, if if not, if everyone, we can't say that everyone is equal or they're getting an equitable uh, education, then we are not doing our jobs as educators. And so our responsibility is for every child, not just some children. No, you're absolutely right. But we also know, like, statistically, yeah. it's had the greatest impact on absolutely. students who look like us. So you're dealing with these issues. You're trying to institute restorative practices in the school emphasize social emotional learning but at the same time you know as a school leader and we know how it works in education success more often than not is measured by test scores yeah measured by the data and you know you and i know that it transcends that absolutely it transcends that but unfortunately if you don't get certain benchmarks on on the test scores, you may be out of a job. So I'm wondering for you, as a school leader, how do you personally measure success? What does success look like to you? Hmm. Well, it definitely does look like achievement. So it looks like our kids achieving academically because we have to give them a fair um, opportunity to achieve and whatever field they decide to achieve in. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also has to look at, it, you know, I always equate it with the, the research, right? We know that the impact of children attitude or their relationship towards um, how they feel about the school is directly related to their education. It's directly related to how they're going to achieve. Um yes. So when a child feels like I belong, when a child feel like, you know, this is a place of I feel safe and I can learn, then learning can happen. Learning will happen. Um, that relationship piece is so critical in um, in teaching a, ch- a child. And so success means to me, it looks like when they can identify, um, our, our children can identify those things, those tools that they need to achieve greatly, achieve in whatever field it is. Um, and yes, I do expect academic excellence. I do. I'm, I'm that type of leader who expect my kids to do well on whatever, but it takes work to create that environment so that they can achieve academically. It takes work for us to sit down and, and look at that whole child. And so when we're, um, I have four goals for our school. So if I have an academic goal and then along with those academic goals, I have two other goals that we, we have to look at their social and emotional well-being and how that impacts that academic goal. We also have to look at um, 
decreasing attendance, like increasing attendance, excuse me. How do we do that? Because I know if they're not in the in school, they're not learning, then I can't, it, it goes back to that academics. And so we we have to still to still focus on that. And so achievement, success means where where our students are not only thriving in um their social and emotional well-being, but they're also thriving in their learning. And I'm 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 looking for that because we have a responsibility to break cycles. And we know that again, education can be that that force that will change the narrative for many of our children. Many of the children that I serve um, come to from you know, come from areas that are marginalized, come from areas that are underprepared and under underrepresented and underserved. And so how do we change that? We don't just, you know, just go, okay, let's give them resources. We teach them how to fish. We don't just give them the fish. We teach them how to fish, teach them about being owning businesses and teach them about um, being confident in who they are because right. all of that relates to achievement in the future. And so, you know, I, I really look at success as we're looking at that whole child. And when we're addressing the whole child, our children will achieve. That was the thing that broke my cycle. And I know that's the thing that's going to break their cycle. And I think the focus on the whole child is imperative. Mm-hmm. And, and I say that because I've been in school districts where they may look at the number yeah, or the percentages, but they fail to contextualize that data. They, don't, they fail to find out why these numbers are the way they are. Absolutely. And it goes back to us not meeting all the needs of the children. Yeah. Right. Are they, are they getting enough food at home? Are they coming to school hungry? Yes, yes. If we're talking about attendance and truancy, it's not always the case where they're missing school because they want to miss school and exactly. they're trying to play hooky. Exactly. Maybe, you know, maybe they don't own a car. Maybe because of how certain neighborhoods are redlined, the school bus doesn't get to their neighborhood. Exactly. So they have to take exactly. public transportation to get to school. And I can't or, afford it this this week. I just I have right, to make a they choice. Can't afford it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Or yeah, it, I yeah, call that peeling back the lay the, the um the the layers. Um, when we ha- when somebody gives me a problem, I'm like, great, that's a problem. Let's pull it back. Now, what's the mm-hmm. reason? The source of that problem? Let's keep yep. peeling. Let's keep peeling, and let's keep addressing and addressing. And until we can get to the root, the real root of the the problem, then we're just saying like what the problem is, and it's not helping our children. And you're right. So if I'm looking at they didn't get the eighty percent, why? What was it? Were they in school? Were they like what? What kind of interventions? Why did we make phone calls? Did you did we find out if their electricity was on? Did you reach out to the FOC? The, uh, that's our family operator. Did you reach out to the family operator to meet that? Like why? There's no excuse why a child uh, needs are not being met. How do we address them? We, we can't wait to be reactive. We have to be proactive in re- addressing our kids. Um, their needs. We really do. No, uh, absolutely. And one way you're doing that is by, it's through the Rise Up 
scholarship program yeah. that uh, you started uh, to support uh, teenage, not just mothers, but parents, because I do yeah. know that there was a young man who did receive a scholarship yes. first time. So yeah. it's expanding to fathers as well. So talk to us about Rise Up, you know, how it got started and how you continue to support teenage parents, you know, in the South Jersey area. Yes. So in 2018, 2018, I was super excited because both my girls graduated college. Um, and the one graduated with her, yeah, she went to Penn State. And um, that's my youngest. My youngest graduated with her nursing degree. She's now, currently, she's going for her doctorate in nursing. Um, and then my youngest graduated from a college with her education, my oldest, I'm sorry, my oldest graduated with her college uh, degree in education. Um, she now has an, a master's and is working as a fourth grade teacher. And so I was super excited. I, I wanted to do something in honor of that accomplishment because, you know, the story is not finished. My story is not finished if if they didn't, they, if you know, if they didn't do what they were needed to do. Because again, statistics says because my kids were children of a teenage mom that they were going to be poor academically, that they were going to have low self-esteem, that they were going to be teenage mothers themselves. And to see my girls, although, you know, we went through so much, you know, I, I, I could tell you stories where it, and it wasn't when they were babies, my kids were older when we were really, really struggling, where we didn't have electricity and we didn't have hot water. And the only way that we could take a shower was because I had a membership to Planet Fitness. And that's wow. how we took a shower uh, every day. And so so my in high school, they were still able to be on the honor roll, you know, despite not having electricity, despite despite not um, having hot water. We lived in the library because we didn't have the lights at home. So we had to go to the library every single day. We didn't own a television. So my girls read a lot. And so despite all of those hardships, my girls were able to, again, go to Penn State. And, which is a, an amazing school. She went on main campus. And then my other daughter, she started off as, as at a historically black college. She went to um, Clark University. And that was, you talk about identity, that was hard for her. Um, she didn't find her identity there. So she did transfer to Rowan um, University. And, you know, for her, for them to go through what they went through, I wanted to honor that. I wanted to celebrate their success in their honor. And so I started the Rise Up uh, scholarship for we, our first time. I only had $500. So my first time I, I, I awarded one young lady $500. She was a, a teenage mom, just had her, her child. And I was doing it for South Jersey area children. And it just kept growing and growing. It, to this year, we were able to, like I said, we were able to do one boy. So we did teenage parents this time, not just mothers. And we were able to bless uh, the four of them with, no, three of them with $1,000 and two of them with $500. So we were able to give out $4,000 to 
our uh, children. And this time we also included, not only did we include the teenage parents, but I also included girls that went through trauma, um, severe trauma, and were able to persevere through that trauma and graduate and still go to college. And all of those things are dear to me. Uh, being a teenage parent, that's dear to me. Um, going through trauma and still persevering, that's dear to me. And they're not the likely students that you're going to find with scholarships. We always give the scholarships to the brightest and the you know ones that have it together. Right. And so for me, giving those, you know, recognizing teenage parents and saying, we see you, we see your hard work, uh, we see your efforts, and we are, we're, you're going to be your biggest cheerleader as you go through this. This is only $1,000, but the, the message behind that is, you know, the tears just fell through all the girls and guys' eyes when we were able to bless them with $1,000 because it, for them, it was hope that somebody sees me and someone um, understands what I'm going through and believes that I can finish this race. And again, I'm, I'm like Harriet, if I can get more, if I can do more, I would. But as much as God is blessing me, I'm going to get some more girls and some more guys and some more children that are, are experiencing trauma and let them know that they can rise up. They can rise up and I'm living proof of it. My kids are living proof of it. Yes. And I, I just realized this. You didn't even mention the fact that you're actually a doctoral student right now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Forgot about that like, part. Yes. Like yes. you're doing you're doing the most in a good yes. way. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I will be getting my doctorate very soon. Like so when I be I should have got my doctorate a long time ago. I started my doctoral program a while ago. Um, and, but when I became a principal, it was like, uh, Fatia, you can't do everything. Right. So it was a little hard. So I took a, a, a very long break and to my surprise, my, my school was like, nope, that was too long. And so we dropped you. <laughs> and so I had to make the appeal recently and they, uh, recently accepted me back into the program. So I am focused, I'm full-time and I found my groove. So that means I can't do all my social events like I used to. But um, uh, I, 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 again, it's a part of my story that I believe that uh, I want children, I want parents, I want mothers, I want whomever looking at my my story to go, if she can do it, I can do it. Um, there's no limitations to what you can do. Again, I started off as a teenage mom who could barely get an A. <laughs> I got F's all through high school and, and well, not all through high school, but all through college, I struggled in the beginning. Um, but, but if I can do it, you know, you can too. So my last question for a lightning round is, okay. When is your book coming out? <laughs> I know. You don't have to write a book about all I this. You know that. A memoir. Title. You got to have a memoir about all this. Yes. Again. So I, true confession. I am not a writer. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm like you. I went to school for, uh, I'm good at math. I'm great at science. I was a math and science teacher, but, you know, writing, I'm, I'm growing into it. You know, I say I'm not a writer, but I have a blog. Um, my blog is called Morning Love Notes to God. And I also have a podcast that I, I direct. So I have to speak a lot. Um, that's called Born to Win in Education. And 
so I do a lot of writing, although I say I'm not a writer. So I, I think it's just about me sitting down and, and writing it. So many people have, have said, you got to write this book. And I remember starting writing this book in during the pandemic. And um, I had the cover. <laughs> I have the title. The cover looks really good, too. Mm. <laughs> and the title is beautiful. Um, it's called But God. Um However, what I discovered is there was a lot of things, unresolved things that I did not um, know that I was still dealing with. And so in starting writing the the writing process, I had to stop because it was emotionally um, hitting me that things that I had forgotten about in my life and things that I'm like, wow, do I really want to share this with people? Um, Because it just like I wouldn't, you know, we're taught as African-American families, like, you know, you don't tell your business. And so it it was hard starting that, starting it. So I had to stop because I knew that it was some things that I needed to still resolve. And I am resolving those things now. But I do believe it's a story that it must be told because I can't make this stuff up. It's, It's it has to be. It's encouraging me when I look back and say, wow, man, God, you know, I'm, I'm that girl who was on the ground. That was me. Um, I was that girl who cut herself. That was me. Um, and so, you know, I think of it and I get so emotional because I look at myself and I'm like, I'm nothing what I used to be. I'm nothing of what I used to be. I'm, I'm in this big, beautiful house right now. And I remember like, going from home to home to home to home. And, um, you know, I, I, I just say, but God, but God, if, if it wasn't for him, um, that changed my life, I I would be dead. (laughs) I wouldn't be here. I would be struggling. And, um, so it's coming, it's coming soon. I just got to work through the tears because it's, it's hard to write, um, when you're not writing about somebody else's life. You're writing about you, and um, it's hard. It's hard. It's hard, but it's coming. It's coming. And and, and when it does come out, it's, it's going to be beautiful. So um, I yeah. think it's well worth the wait. Yeah. I know it's going to be worth the wait for sure. And, you know, as somebody who is self-published books, I feel you. Writing, yeah. writing was not my um, strong suit. When I was growing up, and even today, even though I'm a much better writer and I I write blogs and I do articles for these different platforms, I still have to work hard. Yeah, to put that blog together, I still have to work hard to to write a chapter, to finish the manuscript. It's it's a lot of work, but yeah. when it's done, oh, it's the it greatest good. feeling. Yeah, it's done and you're able to hold it in your hands. Oh, it's it's the best feeling. It's like it's like when you when you give birth and you're like holding that baby for the first time, like that's it, it has that feeling to it. But whew, I, I cannot wait for it to come out. It's coming. Right. It's coming. It's, it's coming. coming. <laughs> All right. So we're gonna get into lightning round to okay. close us out. So I have a few quick questions to ask you, so people can learn more about you outside of the classroom and the school and everything. Okay. So, first question is with all the work that you're doing, 
how do you exercise self-care? What's your favorite activity? So I am a waterfall chaser. <laughs> um, I like to go to waterfalls. I During the pandemic, I learned I love hiking. And I like to hike the to find different uh, waterfalls in New Jersey. I think I went to every New Jersey waterfall. I now expanded to Philadelphia, Pennsylvania area, and also Connecticut now. So I'm a waterfall chaser. All right. Yes. Um, a pearl of wisdom for aspiring school leaders. They can um, share. So I'm going to share what I, my, the principal, my mentor principal told me, get a Q-tip. <laughs> Don't take it personal. Don't take it personal. All right. A book that you're currently reading. It, it doesn't have to be educational. It could be for leisure as well. Oh, I'm I'm reading a book called uh, Shift. Uh, it's a book about because I'm 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 in the process of shifting. <laughs> so um, it's a book about just uh, shifting your attitude, your thoughts, and how to progress during that shift. So can't remember the art, uh, author, but it is called Shift. Shift. All right. Yeah. Um, do you have an all-time favorite movie? All time, you know, I'm not so I don't own a television and I don't really go to the movies. So, but all time favorite, oh, yes, I do. All time favorite movie would be You Got Mail. <laughs> don't ask me why, but it is Tom Hanks, right? Tom With, Hanks, yes. And Meg Ryan. Yes, I love, I love, classic. love That's a I love, love stories. I really love, I'm, I'm not a big horror, I don't like that, but any like romantic love stories, yes, I love that. All right, awesome. And lastly, if you can invite three influential figures, dead or alive, to dinner, who would they be? Oh, definitely Harriet Tubman. I think I embody her. I feel like if if I, if if I was living during her time, I would just like want to hang on everything that she was doing. Um, I love her story um, because she was a boss. Like when you think about the ultimate boss lady, she was a boss lady. She right. didn't have to go back, but she said, "I'm going back to get them." And um, I, I kind of think of myself like that. So Harriet Tubman would definitely be one. Michelle Obama, I absolutely love her. I, I love Michelle. One, I have I've written her so many times to invite her to Forest Hill. She hasn't gotten back to me yet. I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up. Um, but uh, I, I love how she um, has her own identity. I think that's so beautiful that while she is the helpmate of a, a very strong man, she still had her own identity and she, she just was be beautifully displayed um, in doing so. So I love that. I would love to pick her brain and talk to her. So Michelle would be another one. And then my grandma, my grandma, I miss mm -hmm. her. So um, I definitely think she is influential in my life. And um you know, I just want her, I want to thank her. I don't think, you know, growing up, we we don't appreciate our elders like we should. And I want to thank her for instilling in me, um, me. And I, I didn't realize how much of my uh, influence my, my maternal grandmother had on me until I lost her. And so I just want to say a thank you. And um, she hadn't seen me now like this when my mother was in uh, the hospital mm -hmm. and I had my daughter, my grandmother 
I, she could have ridiculed cruel me. She could have did all of that. And I remember her taking me to the to the thrift store because <laughs> we couldn't really afford it and buying me clothes and um, not shaming me or doing any of that. She just bought me clothes and and that was her way of saying, I, I, we, we still got you. We still got you. So I want to say thank you for her endless love, even in despite, uh, in, even in the midst of me being um, lost, she still was able to, to love on me. And I want to thank you, Principal Rachma, for coming on to the podcast. And Yay. I know that we, we uh, talked about some difficult parts of your life and you may have to relive it you know, mentally, but yeah, um, I'm going to pat myself on the back because I did not shed a tear. Yes. You do and the I, same too I purposely said my story. Hour. Yes. I could do it with crying, but I'm like, I'm not crying. I'm not crying. Not today. You held back. I, there was some times like, uh, uh, but you <laughs> held back funny. though. Yes. 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 But, yes. but thank you so much. Um, you're an inspiration. You are joy. Um, I just love everything about you, your spirit, and you. please, um, as you transition into your new position, just continue to just be you because there are so many young women who are hopefully listening to this and watching this, and they're gaining inspiration from your story. Thank you, thank you, thank you. It was such a pleasure. It was like I said, I've, I've followed you for the longest, so I'm honored to be on here. And hopefully, my story will just bless someone. And um, I just encourage everyone to continue to do what they're called to do. Um, don't ever, don't let your light dim. Let that light shine. All right. So thank you so much and hope you have a great rest of your Sunday. Yay, yes. It's going to be sensational. <laughs> yes, it will. Thank you so much. Awesome. All right. So, y'all, I don't know what to say following that interview, but all I have to say is this. Uh, this is why I just love doing this podcast because they're just – there are so many stories out there that can touch people and really hit people in the spirit. And this was one of those stories today. So this is why, you know, we, we have to keep this platform going because there are people out there who need to hear these stories. And one way you can do that once again is by just sending a donation small donation to the podcast because that's what allows us to keep going. That's what allows us to keep bringing on phenomenal guests like Principal Rachman on to share their stories. And, and quite frankly, you know, there are a lot of creators out there who are putting out some great content and they're doing it out of pocket and they're doing it for free. And, this is a lot of work putting this podcast together. So, yeah, please make sure you support uh, the creators, particularly black creators, because we know that there's a narrative out there about that. And, you know, we're going to keep this thing going. Now, if you love what you heard today or if there are some past episodes that, you know, really hit you, please make sure you leave a review on Apple Podcast, um, whether it's 
feedback to help us improve the podcast or just an encouraging word to let us know how we're doing. All those words are helpful as we continue to build this platform and move forward. So, you know, thank you again all for your support. And as I always tell you, I wish you a good morning, good afternoon, good night, wherever you are in the world. And we're going to do this again another time. Peace out, everybody. Thank you for listening to the Identity Talk for Educators Live podcast. Make sure to follow us on Instagram with the handle at Identity Talk for Educators Live. And that's a numeral four in the middle. You can also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all other streaming platforms. We're always striving to provide you with quality content. So if you love what you heard tonight, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And to check out the video episodes of the podcast, you can visit our website at www.identitytalkforeducators.com. Thank you and have a great day.